risen. Oh, wait, are you, did I catch you by surprise? Yeah, I know, it's not Easter anymore, right? It's not Easter. Well, I have great news for you. Guess what? Even after Easter, he is still risen. So let's try this one more time. Whether you're at home or you're here, he is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. You guys, he's still risen. Easter changes everything. It's not just a special Sunday. Easter changes everything, right? Sin and death were defeated for us on that holy weekend so long ago. We can walk in newness of life now because sin and death have been uh, defeated for us. He came that we might have life and that more abundantly right here, right now, and forevermore. That's the impact of Easter. Easter is, is not just a one-day thing. Because of Easter, that victorious life is meant to be an everyday thing. And so that's what we're going to get into this morning because that's at least how it's supposed to be. But let's be honest. Some of us would have to admit that we live our lives sometimes as if Easter was just a day in history so many years ago. It's a nice thing to remember, some nice traditions with our family, maybe a visit to church. And that's how we live our lives. Well, today I'm going to attack that stronghold from the Word of God so that it's obliterated in our minds and we never think that way again. Today, we're going to talk about three specific ways to experience the abundant life even after Easter. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you now as your children, thankful, thankful, thankful for the cross. Oh, so thankful for the empty tomb. Thankful for what those things mean in our lives and aware, Lord, that somehow we've got to translate the excitement of Easter Sunday into every single day of our lives. And so we ask you, God, to teach us this morning. We ask you to take our full attention. We ask you, God, to get deep into our hearts and actually change our lives with your word as we open it together today. For we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, today's message is entitled, He is Risen, Now What? Now what? And as I said, we're going to talk about three ways to make sure the fact that He is risen is actually lived out in your daily life, day in and day out. And I don't have time to um, spend a lot of time on each of those three areas. So I'm going to jump right into it. And if you're taking notes, now's the time to sharpen your pencil because we're going to jump right into it. Three ways for us to live the abundant life even after Easter. Number one, be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to Christ. I know, I know, it seems obvious, right? Some of you are sitting here going, oh, I see this is an evangelism sermon and I'm already a Christian. He's telling us to be reconciled to Christ. It's time to start playing angry birds and pretend like I'm taking notes, right? No, that's not true. 
Because whether you're hearing about Jesus for the first time today, or whether you've been walking with Jesus for years and years and years, this calling to be reconciled to Christ is always relevant in all of our lives. It may seem obvious, but let me explain. So there are so many people who know all about Easter. I mean, not just the eggs and the bunnies and all that, but the historical Easter. And there are people who even not only know about the historical Easter and the risen Christ, but they believe it's true. They're convinced that the tomb really is empty, that Jesus really is risen, and, and they know that. But they haven't let the truth of the empty tomb actually transform their lives. The Gospels tell us about two very, very prominent figures who went down very similar paths and ended up in two very, very different places. Let me, let me tell you what I'm talking about. First of all, let's think about a guy named Judas, right? Now, you know Judas. Judas is the forever black hat in the Gospels. He is the bad guy. He's the one we all love to hate. Nobody I know ever named their child after Judas, right? Nobody names their child Judas. Nobody names their child Jezebel. Nobody names their child Lucifer. There are some people in Scripture that we don't want to name our children after. Although some of us, after our children got to be two or three, we thought about changing their names. But Judas always is this name that goes down in history infamously as the bad guy of the Gospels, right? And, and for good reason. He betrayed Christ. But I want you to think about this. Have you ever thought about this? You know, the scripture tells us legitimately, specifically, that Satan himself entered into Judas, and from that place Judas went and betrayed Christ. So, so Judas was possessed not just by a demon, but by Satan himself. Everybody else in the Gospels that we read about who was demon-possessed, our hearts go out to them, right? Our, our, we feel compassion for them. We're so thankful when Jesus cast demons out and this person has been set free. But with Judas, we, we give him no compassion whatsoever. This guy was possessed by Satan and that drove him to do what he did. Now, the scripture tells us he was a thief and a liar. There was a lot wrong with Judas. I'm not suggesting you name your next child Judas. But I am saying this, he betrayed Christ and he felt terrible remorse immediately afterwards. And Judas gave in to despair. And Judas ended his own life. And Judas missed Easter. That's figure number one, Judas. There's another figure I want us to think about. I want you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. New Testament, third book, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go to Luke 22 as we get to the end of the story. And in Luke 22, beginning in verse 54, I want you to follow along with me as I read. Luke 22, 54 through 62. I didn't put this on your screen, so write it in your notes. Luke 22, 54 through 62. 
This is going back to the time of Jesus' arrest before the crucifixion. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And after they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man is also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then check out verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he told him before a rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. As, as Jesus is apparently being led through the courtyard, right as Peter shouts and curses and gives his last pronouncement that he never knew Jesus and the rooster crows fulfilling Jesus' prophecy, Jesus and, and Peter lock eyes. Can you imagine what that moment felt like for both of them? Well, we know what it felt like for Peter because he burst into tears and he runs out weeping like a child. Now listen, just like Judas, Peter betrayed Christ, even after swearing he never would. Just like Judas, Peter felt terrible remorse immediately after his sin. And he ran away and he wept bitterly. Peter and Judas were many ways walking the exact same path. But there came a point where their paths diverged. It all comes down to how they responded to their sin. See, it always comes down to how we respond to Christ even after we failed him. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one here who's ever failed him. I'm guessing I'm not the only one here who's ever felt that kind of brokenness that makes you just want to break down in tears and think, how did this happen? How could I have done this? How could I have fallen in the same hole again and again and again? How could I let him down like this? I'm guessing I'm not the first person who has ever wet my pillow with tears because of my own sin. So we can relate to Judas we can relate to Peter. We know what it's like to fail him. The question will remain for us, what will we do when we have failed him? You see, the difference takes place in John chapter 21. Again, take your Bibles. If you're in Luke, just turn to the right. The next book is John. Go to the end of the book of John. Go to John 21 and meet me there in verse 4. Now this is after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. And what's happened is Peter and some of the disciples have gone out fishing. 
And we pick up the story in uh, John 21, verse 4. When the day was now breaking, Jesus, the risen Jesus, stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? Every fisherman loves this. <laughs> What'd you catch today? Nothing. You do not have any fish, do you? And they said, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging a net full of fish. So when they got out to the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. We're about to witness one of the most uncomfortable, awkward situations in all of the New Testament. Peter, the betrayer, is now coming face to face with Jesus, the betrayed. And they're going to meet over breakfast. Imagine how uncomfortable and how awkward this is for Peter. He knows what he did and he knows that Jesus knows what he did. And for the first time, proud, boisterous, self-confident Peter is sheepish. He's quiet. And I imagine he's having a hard time looking Jesus in the eye. He knows that he needs to be reconciled to Christ. But how? How do you undo what he did? How do you unspill that milk? How do you clean up that mess? What can he possibly say now to the risen Christ that would make up for his horrible betrayal? And then the moment of truth comes. <laughs> After an awkward, probably pretty quiet breakfast, um, we get Jesus directly addressing Peter about what happened. Pick it up in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, "Feed my, uh, tend my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, as this unfolds, this has got to be okay for Peter, right? Because first of all, um, Jesus addresses him as a friend. 
And he says to him, do you love me? And Peter's thinking, hey, he's speaking to me. Hey, maybe he's not finished with me yet. Because what Jesus says to him after he says, yes, I love you, is this. Tend my lambs. In other words, I have something for you to do. I still want you to be a shepherd to people, Peter. That must have been so thrilling for him to hear. When I'm so unworthy, when I'm so broken, when I'm so guilty, and God comes along and says, I'm not finished with you yet. I still have a plan for your life, and it's a glorious plan. That's a good thing. That's verse 15. But then Jesus asks the same question again in verse 16. And if you're Peter, you're thinking, well, maybe Jesus can use me. But why is he repeating the question? And then in verse 17, it all becomes obvious. In verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, why in the world would Jesus ask that question three times? Well, let me ask you this. How many times did Peter deny him? Ah, now you're starting to see. It seems as if Jesus is trying to make a point here with Peter. Three times, he not only denied that he loved him, he denied that he even knew him. He denied that he had anything to do with him. He let fear and temptation rule him instead of serving the Savior who would do so much to set him free from his sin, right? And now he knew it. And so Jesus doesn't ask him once. He doesn't ask him twice. He asks him three times. Jesus knew exactly what Peter had done. But he still wasn't finished with him yet. Jesus still loves Peter. In spite of Peter's huge blunder. God still had huge plans for Peter's life. In spite of how Peter had failed with the last plan God had for his life. And as we know, in the book of Acts, Peter becomes the leader of the apostles. He becomes the central figure in the young church. He becomes the one who is the leader of the revival that breaks out in Jerusalem and all around the area that ends up with the church that we are now a part of today. Peter's failures didn't stop God from using him. But first... Peter had to be reconciled to Christ. Some of you may know about Easter. And some of you may even be convinced it's true. But you haven't yet turned back to Jesus and accepted the forgiveness that Easter is all about. Let me tell you something. God is not finished with you yet. Of course he knows what you did. Of course he knows who you've been. Of course he knows how you've been living. Of course he knows what you've been hiding so well, or at least so you think, from everybody else. But he's not finished with you yet. 
God still wants to pour out blessings in your life. He still wants to pour out blessings for others through your life. He has great plans for you. And it's all about grace. But you have to be willing to accept that grace, whether it's for the first time because you're just hearing this for the first time, or whether it's for the 300th time that you say, Lord, I failed you again. Forgive me, cleanse me, set me free. Whatever the case, you must be reconciled to Christ. That's what makes life after Easter great. That's number one. Number two is this. Not only do you need to be reconciled to Christ, you need to walk with Christ. We get this great picture of people walking with Christ after the resurrection. Now, this may sound simplistic, but really it isn't. Christ reveals himself to us little by little by little by little as we walk with him. That's how it works. Do you remember those two disciples on the road to Emmaus who walked with Jesus on the road without even realizing it? This too takes place after Easter, right? Two disciples of Jesus are on their way back to their hometown of Emmaus because, after all, their Savior has now been uh, tortured and put to death. They saw him on the cross. They saw him laid in the tomb. They saw the stone rolled away. And when Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb, their hopes and dreams were buried right along with him. And these are broken men. They have gone to be with Jesus to follow him. When he said to them, if, you, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross daily, deny himself and follow me. They said yes. These guys had been following Jesus and now they were walking away from Jerusalem and going straight back to their old life just the way Peter went back to fishing. We meet them in Luke 24 as they're walking home with their heads hanging down. So go back to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. And Jesus has joined these guys on the road, but they don't recognize him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? Can you imagine how hard it was for Jesus not to laugh at that moment? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. So Jesus is risen, but they don't know about it. Their hopes have been dashed. They thought they knew what was going to happen. They thought there was good things in store, and everything went down the toilet on that Good Friday. Have you been there? You know what it's like to have your hopes and dreams dashed? To feel like the one thing you wanted was taken away from you? A loved one passes? A job is lost? 
A relationship is torn away from you. A dream fades into the distance as you go through the drudgery of your day-to-day life until you finally just forgive up, uh, just finally give up on it. These guys were dejected. These guys are brokenhearted. They had heard, we find out later, they had heard from the women who went to the tomb that he was risen and they just couldn't believe it. They say, we had hoped, past tense, that he was the Messiah. We had hoped he was going to deliver us. But things hadn't worked out that way, had they? So they're on their way back to their old life in Emmaus. And that is when Jesus chased them down. Guys, let this just be a lesson to all of us. Don't bother running from Jesus. He's faster than you. He will catch you. He doesn't give up on you. You might lose your confidence in him, but he never loses confidence in you. You might lose your faith in him, but he does not lose his faith in you. As you walk away from him, he runs after you. Jesus hasn't given up on you yet. He wants to walk with you. And he found these men who loved him, who were brokenhearted, and he met them in their brokenness and he walked with them. And that walk with Jesus led to greater and greater clarity and understanding in their hearts until finally they were filled with faith and they were ready to walk in light of the resurrection for the rest of their lives. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going and they acted as though they were going farther, but he, uh, he acted as though he was going farther, but they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found, gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord is really risen and has appeared to Simon. By this time, Jesus has already appeared to them numerous times. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. They began to relate their experience of walking with Jesus and how in that process of walking with Jesus, little by little by little, they came to know him more. And pretty soon it became clear as he revealed himself to them and as he reasoned with them from where? The scriptures. You see, it was the word of God that revealed Jesus to them. It was their experience of talking with him and listening to him that revealed Jesus to him. Their lives were transformed as they walked with him. He revealed himself 
as he shared the scriptures with them. My friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And certainly, you've got a copy of this book. If you don't, let me know after the service and I will put one in your hands today because you have to have one. Because if you've got the Holy Spirit and you've got the Word of God, then you can walk with Jesus in a way in which He will reveal Himself to you and transform your lives. You only grow in your understanding and in your experience with God as you walk with Christ by embracing His Spirit and His Word. You will never find the abundant life outside of a daily walk with Jesus that's personal. It's not just about Sunday mornings. Pray. Worship. Study his word. And little by little, he will transform your life from the broken mess that you have made it into the abundant life that he designed it to be. What do you do after Easter? You walk with the risen Christ every day. All right, we got to get to point number three, and you guys are not listening fast enough, so here we go. Point number three, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. You've heard this before. These are the famous last words. This time we're going to go to the book of Matthew. So just turn left three books, get to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, very last verses in Matthew and these are the last words that Matthew records from Jesus before he ascends into heaven. This is what he says to his followers. Matthew 28, 18, he says this. And Jesus came up and spoke with him saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus has not just offered us a gift of forgiveness. And he's not just offered us a relationship with him. But he has commissioned us to a life of purpose. This is a calling from God. I hear from people all the time, well, I, I feel like God's called me to this. I feel like God's called me to that. Or how come I don't know what God's called me to? Listen, if you want to know God's calling for your life, here it is. It's in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is God's calling for you. Go and make disciples. That's what he has called us to do. That's what we do after Easter. Go and make disciples. Your calling is not your career. Your calling is not fame and fortune. Your, your calling is not even your family, as important as any of these things might be. Those things are all important, but they're not your primary calling. God has called his church and every member of it to go and make disciples of all nations. If you're a Christian, you are not just a disciple. You are a disciple maker. I really feel like too many church leaders have gotten this wrong. The way we do church in 21st century America, success 
in a local church is primarily defined, no matter what we might say, by how many people, how big the building, how big's the budget, all of those numbers of church growth. And those are important things. But we've defined success that way. And I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of churches that are growing in numbers, but are not making disciples. And specifically, not making disciples who are ready to make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple, or a disciple is a follower of a master who in following that master becomes like him. Jesus calls us his disciples and he tells us that our commission is to make more disciples. How do you do that? One life at a time. You do it through relationships. You do it by loving people. You do it by spending time together and letting your conversation be about something more than the weather and last night's game. You do it by praying for one another, supporting one another, challenging one another, encouraging one another. You do it one-on-one. -on -one. You do it in small groups. You do it in families. You do it with your life. And you can do it. This is not a preacher's job. This is a Christ follower's job. One life at a time. Now, before I let you go, let me remind you of Peter's little chat with Jesus by the fire. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, right? We saw it, John 21. Jesus asked him three times, same question, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? By the end, Peter's frustrated. Well, if you haven't heard this before, let me clarify. This is one of those places in Scripture where if you have some understanding of the Greek language, it will help you tremendously. And even if you've never studied Greek, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that in Greek there are many words for love. There, there's the word that describes God's love for us. It's agapeo or agape. And, and that word is the word that describes perfect love, unending love, um, love that uh, requires nothing of it, love that, that cannot be denied or, or, or taken away. It's a perfect, selfless love. It's the love that God has for us. Now, when Jesus asks the question, that's the word he uses. He says, Peter... Do you agape me? So that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is that when Peter answers, he does not use the word agape. He says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Now the Greek word phileo means I love you like a brother. Jesus asked him specifically, do you love me with this perfect unending love? And Peter, having seen his own sin, responds by saying, you know what, Jesus, if I've learned anything, I learned that I don't know anything about agape, but I'll give you what I've got. I love you like a brother. And Jesus says, tend my lambs. And then a second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And once again, Peter, in humility, in honesty, not puffing out his chest, not pretending to be someone he's not. Peter says, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. And then the coin flips. Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you even phileo me? And that's when Peter says, Lord, you know all things. 
You know my heart. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. You know that I phileo you. That's what I've got. I give you what I've got. No more, you know, boisterous, proud shouts. No more sticking out his chest. No more, I promise, I swear, I'm committed. You can count on me. None of that. Just, Lord, I'm not much, but what I am, you can have. You know what it is? It's the difference between commitment, which Peter was really good at before this, and surrender, which is what happened when Peter realized who he really was. So let me ask you, do you love him? If so, the response is surrender. I'm not asking you to raise your hand and make some new commitment. I'm not asking you to sign a card and promise you'll never do it again. I'm not asking you to lean over and tell your neighbor your three biggest sins that nobody knows about, although that would make for an interesting service. I'm not asking you for any of that. God's had enough of that from us, don't you think? Commitments we don't keep. Promises we're not going to keep. God's asking for surrender. He's asking you to lift your hands and say, God, enough of me. Let's make this about you. No more pretense, no more pride, no more hiding, no more excuses. Just accepting God's grace. What areas of your life do you need to fully surrender to Jesus? Your hopes? Your plans? Your self-confidence? You're so sure of yourself. Maybe some area of sin you've been holding on to. What, I don't know. Maybe think about it this week. Maybe ask God to search your heart and reveal to you this week what you've been holding back. And isn't it time to live that abundant post-Easter resurrection life that happens through surrender? Listen, my friends. He is still risen and that means you and I can walk in newness of life if we're just willing to fully surrender to Christ. So this week, as you walk with him, I want you to ask him to search your heart and show you what you need to surrender. And as you take your hands off and you let him have control of your life, I promise you, you will begin to experience the abundant, spirit-filled life that maybe you've only heard about before. It's time to surrender. Heavenly Father, with our hearts lifted, our heads bowed, and our hands raised as a universal sign of surrender, we confess that we are not enough to walk in this abundant resurrection life. We need you. Our commitments will never get us through. Our own power will never get us through. And so we surrender. We ask you to meet us here. Take us from this place, just as you did with Peter, and make us into the people you want us to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.